0: The joy, the delight, the privilege, and the honor that's ours today to assemble on this occasion, to do so on this first day of the week as commanded and ordained of God, is truly a magnificent way to begin this week, and to do so as a part of worship, to offer praise and adoration in song and prayer, and also by giving thought to His Word. The singing this morning, the opportunity for prayer, each of these things have prepared us in addition to open the Word of God quite often this morning to the book of Proverbs and give some thought to the financial advice from an inspired rich man. It is with that thought in mind, we certainly could echo the sentiments that Brother Ted shared concerning the Bible Bowl yesterday, our appreciation to all who participated and assisted in it. And as we proceed to give some thought to the beauty of Exodus and how our life has been enriched by it, we come to a little bit later study of the Old Testament this morning at least as we turn to Proverbs on so many occasions. By way of introduction, let me direct your attention to a few of these thoughts, if I might. The richness that we feel this morning may well be echoed in the sentiments of Psalm 1914, in which we read, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The joy and the desire of each of us this morning toward that end will also lead us to touch the subject of money and finances and economics. It is with those thoughts in mind that a few introductory matters might be in order. Isn't it amazing how often that financial matters and economic considerations dictate so many things in this world? International affairs are often propagated by financial matters. Wars are fought at times because of financial issues. In addition, our own country is battling greatly, currently, even as we speak, the matters of debt and the greatness associated with the finances that will be heaped upon your children, grandchildren, and mine. Is it not fair to say in our families, financial matters can often be exceedingly abundant. And in fact, they can be very important. Because isn't it true that many of the most notable problems in life are at least aided by financial troubles? When a given family has financial problems, that can lead to a disconnect between the husband and the wife. That may well lead to ultimately divorce. But even if not, it can lead to anxiety and stress and depression When financial matters, in fact, are controlling one's thinking, it can often make life a very, very hard thing. I suppose in light of all of that, one can't help but ask, does the Bible have any advice for us on how to handle our finances, both personally and as a family, and even as a nation? If it were the case that the Bible had such advice, would it not be terrific if our leaders would in fact turn to that advice, employ it, using it in direct policy toward that end? I would submit to you, beginning today, let's look at a very brief series of lessons dealing with the financial advice from an inspired rich man. It is with that thought in mind that we'll begin today by looking at some introductory matters concerning the person from whom this advice flows. And might we spend a few moments then thinking about who the inspired rich man is to whom I refer? As we open the annals of the Old Testament and look with such interest in its marvelous pages, we encounter, of course, a gentleman named David, who is described in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. One who at that stage in his life was a prime example of godliness, interest in spiritual matters, and directing his life in the way that's right in the sight of Almighty God in heaven. David had many sons. Certainly not the oldest was a gentleman named Solomon. In fact, he was born to that woman named Bathsheba. But it was Solomon who would in fact take the control of the kingship after the demise of David. After David passed away in 1 Kings chapter 2, we find that the one appointed to succeed him was his son named Solomon. It is with regard to Solomon, we have a rather pristine picture, at least at the outset of his regal and royal reign. It was on that occasion that God appeared to him and basically said, Ask what I shall give thee, First Kings 3, 5. It was on that occasion that Solomon was given by God the blankness of asking anything he wished. One might immediately think of many things. What would you have asked for? What would I have asked for? A long life, perhaps victory over those that would be our enemies. If we were in position of king, we might ask for military might so that we could in fact maintain great strength for a long, long time. Solomon didn't ask for any of those things. In humility, recognizing his position as judge, he asked, give thy servant an understanding heart. And two verses later, as God reiterated it, He said, Thou hast asked for a wise and understanding heart. Solomon, you see, asked for wisdom. He asked for the opportunity to appreciate the truth in regard to judgment, understanding, and wisdom. And God was so pleased with that request. In fact, we find God stating in verses 10 and following of that chapter That because thou hast asked for a wise and understanding heart, I shall make thee the wisest of all, and furthermore, I shall grant thee that for which thou hast not asked riches. We learn immediately Solomon was to be a very, very wealthy man. Not only was he wise, he was wealthy. And may I submit that we can thus employ a great deal of the advice that he has to share because he could speak to it from every potential angle. He was rich, he was also inspired, and as such he was also a very wise man. What more could one ask for in terms of appreciating one from whom this kind of advice could be given? Wise, wealthy, and inspired. As you give thought to the evidence of his wisdom... Look at some of the things stated in the Old Testament about him. We learn immediately in 1 Kings 4, verses 30 and following, that Solomon was wiser than all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all the kings of the East. He was the wisest of all men, the text says. In fact, so wise was he that we learn immediately that he wrote over 3,000 proverbs and 1,005 songs. And isn't it amazing to look at the testimony of that wisdom in the books that he wrote? the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of the Song of Solomon. All of them penned by him and her testimony to the wisdom that God gave him. But what about his riches? We've already noted the prosperity that we have been able to appreciate as God mentioned he would be a rich man. Do you recall with me that in 1 Kings 10, a woman from a far distance came to visit him, the Queen of Sheba. And when she came, she said, The half of it hasn't been told me, because I have seen thy wisdom and thy prosperity. Even at that point in his life, his riches were perhaps untold. In 2 Chronicles 1.15, we have one of the most vivid descriptions of his riches. It was on that occasion said of Jerusalem that silver and gold were as stones in Jerusalem during his reign. So plentiful were the riches that they were as common as rocks. That was a very rich man and a very rich kingdom. And what's more, we can give perhaps one more view to it in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 8. Give some thought to the temple over which he, in fact, had constructed. The ornateness, the extravagance, many parts of it overlaid with pure gold... The finest of ornate works were employed. The finest wood products that were available were used. Even to this day, it has been estimated that if that building were on earth today, it would be one of the two or three richest buildings on earth in terms of the amount of money taken to build it. I'd submit, without any further discussion, that Solomon was rich and he was wealthy. What advice might he be able then to share with you and me, given that also he was inspired? It is to the book of Proverbs that we shall turn on so many occasions for the rest of our lesson this morning, listening to what he has to say. And as we do that, the first and foremost lesson is the one that was read before us by Joy a few moments ago. In Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10, we have the first lesson that must be solidly embedded in our hearts if we are to be dutiful and rightful stewards of the financial means that God has given us. Rereading those two verses, Honor the Lord with thy substance, and with the firstfruits of thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. The first lesson then is this one. Everything belongs to God. When you and I give thought to our possessions, our financial means, our money, our houses, those things that we may consider to be ours, at the most basic and ultimate level, they are not ours. They are God's. They belong to Him. And we are here told by Solomon, Honor the Lord with thy substance. Whatever you own, whatever you have, whatever I own, whatever I have, whatever we as families own and have, we need to honor God with it. It is His at the most basic level anyway. Doesn't that challenge us to appreciate that we are but stewards of all of that while we are here? We are but caretakers of it. Aren't we told in First Corinthians 4 verse 2 that a steward must be found faithful? We then need to be dutiful and faithful employers of that which He has given us, using it rightly, properly, correctly and to do so in the way that would be pleasing to God. It goes without saying that then as you and I think about the way God touches our lives, we may pray to Him, study His Bible. We may in fact often reflect upon some of the things that He has told us. But if we don't allow Him to be honored by our money, then we aren't honoring Him in the way that we should. You see, we can't let God be in a position to never touch that part of our lives. When the collection plate is plashed on Monday, do you give Him how He's prospered you? If you don't, there's a problem. And the problem's not with God. It's with you or with me. Honor the Lord with thy substance. If we, in fact, withhold that part from Him, He's really not the Lord of our life. We may say that He is. We may give lip service to the fact He is, but He really isn't. Until we honor Him with our substance... He is not the Lord of all of our life. In fact, a few more passages along that line would perhaps lead us to note this. Didn't the Lord in such a poetic way in Psalm 50 verse 10 say that those cattle on a thousand hills, God said they're mine. So if you're a farmer, those cows that you may think you have, really they're gods. That particular set of talents and abilities that you have They really are God's, but He expects you and me to employ and use them in a way to honor Him. And Solomon thus said, Honor the Lord with thy substance. With what your substance is and what mine is, let us make sure ever that we learn first and foremost this lesson because all the others will in some way be subservient to it. Honor the Lord with thy substance. It is true then as we give to God as we've been prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, and we do so cheerfully and not in a grudging way, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, that we should do so with bounty and appreciation of that privilege and the responsibility that's ours in that regard. But what's more, perhaps a second lesson. After we have mastered this consideration of honoring God with our substance, give some thought with me, if you would, to Proverbs 28, verse 6. Yet another interesting way in which this lesson is put. Proverbs 28, verse number 6. Better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. An important point then to notice that there are some, in fact many throughout the ages, Who have believed that money in and of itself is wrong. It's sinful, you mustn't have it, you in fact don't need it. And hence they have lived in convents and they've lived in other places. And you and I certainly can't doubt their sincerity, and we can't doubt their devotion to God. But the correctness of their initial proposition simply isn't true. It is not wrong to have means and money. What we find in this passage is, better is the poor that walketh in his uprightness than he that is perverse in his ways, though he be rich. That which is, in fact, lifted to such high condemnation is that perverseness with which one walks with the means that he has. And might we use that to point us in this direction? What the inspired writer here describes... As perverseness is what is condemned, and hence money that is acquired in a perverse way, or money that has been acquired but then is spent in a perverse way, is that which is condemned. As you and I give thought to what that involves, what does it mean to discuss perverseness? That word simply means, as you might expect, it is that which is a condemned thing because it is not upright. It is not honest and forthright and direct. It has been acquired by some way and means which in fact is frowned upon by the very nature of the God of heaven. No wonder we learn in Exodus 20.15, thou shalt not steal. It wasn't right and appropriate to just take what belonged to someone else. We find that reiterated in in Ephesians 4.28. Let him that stole steal no more but rather let him labor with his hands, working the thing that is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Thus, we learn stealing is not right in God's sight, and hence that should be put far from any person desirous of pleasing God. But you'll notice a few of these other passages as well. In 2 Corinthians 8.21, provide for things honest in the sight of all men. And that word honest, as we've noted in the past, means honorable. Whatever you and I do, it should be done to the glory of God, appreciative of His will and laws, and that touches even the way in which you and I are allowed to make money. Our jobs, we should do so with honor, and we should appreciate that that which we have been allowed to have should be used to honor God with that substance. As if all of that isn't enough, in Proverbs 16 verse 8, we learn this rather pointed passage. On that occasion, this same writer said, speaking about the nature of this honor in words like this, "'Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues without right.'" We learn thus that those who have acquired great riches but who have done so with perverseness, God does not look well on that circumstance. And as we shall learn later in the lesson, they will have a mighty great amount to pay. After all, as one gives thought to these two lessons, consider how they point us to a third one. So far, looking at these two, we learned something about greed. How often greed is a rightful matter that finds its discussion when money is mentioned. What does the Bible say about being greedy? That is to have one's attention, one's eye riveted on money and perhaps directing all the affairs of life toward that end to make more of it, to store more of it, to in fact desire to have greater amounts of it and to trample over perhaps any and everything else in order to have it. Greed. You may notice I said it's a sin. Look at some of the ways that greediness is described in the Bible. In Proverbs fifteen twenty seven is a good place to start. This very book in which we now are this morning. In Proverbs fifteen twenty seven the writer said, He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house, but he that hateth gifts shall live. Think with me if you would about some of the things that greed brings. We've described it as being this tremendous love for money, but what are some of the other matters that come right along with it? That person that's greedy, no doubt difficulties and problems are going to arise at home between that person and his mate, between that person and his or her children. Because when one is greedy for money, other things are going to take a back seat. Other things are going to be overlooked or neglected so that the money can be pursued. Did you notice he said, He that is greedy of gain troubleth his own house. The members of a household are going to suffer when dad or mom are greedy. It's just that simple. They're not going to have the direction in life because money is going to be pursued rather than things of a more noble character such as the matters of righteousness and spirituality, the matters of wholesome Christian godly living. The money is going to take front seat, you see. As you give some thought to that, notice just a few of these other passages. In Proverbs 1, verses 19 and following, we learn on that occasion that a lengthy discussion follows and the inspired writer has stated many things that are terrible. And then he says, this is what happens to those that are greedy. I'll invite you to read from about verse 8 on to verse 19 in that chapter. As you notice what's described, it is not a pretty picture. None of us would desire to be described like that. To be described like those who are greedy of gain. Is any wonder that we can now hear Solomon say, Do not be greedy. Here was a man that was wealthy and perhaps you and I can say, Well, he had no need for greed. But let us not forget he was also wise and he was also inspired. What he wrote was God's words of wisdom for that age and every age. You and I need to think very carefully. Where do we place money among the priorities of our life? If it's occupying the top position, the second position, even the third position, there's a problem. We are told directly here in terms of that which involves greediness. In fact, we can see some of the other ways that the Bible addresses it. In Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve two masters. For either you will hate the one and love the other. You will cling to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And mammon is the Aramaic word for money. You cannot serve money and God. They will not coexist as co-equal regents on the throne of one's heart. It will not happen. Later in the New Testament, we have reference to the greediness of Balaam. In Numbers 22, we remember this prophet who in fact was beseeched by the king to curse the people of Israel. However, when he came, he did speak God's word and he blessed them instead. But you'll notice that in Jude 11, it says, The greediness of Balaam is what directed it. He was after the money that king was willing to offer him. He was willing to, in fact, proceed to curse the people of God just to get the money. Isn't that sad? Isn't it tragic? What some today will do for money. And there are television shows, by the way, that lift that thought to unreasonable and ungodly heights where there are people who are set against another and, of course, the prize is a couple hundred thousand dollars, maybe even a million. But what will people do for money? It's despicable to watch it and to even consider that such a thing can take place. Might I suggest that greed is a sin? As you've looked at all of these, notice again how Balaam was described in Jude 11. The wages of unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is that which is against God. And may you and I thus always think twice about where we place the priority of money in our lives. What about yet a fourth lesson? The oppression of the poor. How is this money acquired? What have you and I done and what do we do to in fact acquire or obtain the monies, the finances, and the means that we have? It would be perhaps obvious that such an oppression of the poor would not be pleasing to God, but given the oftenness with which Solomon mentions it, I thought it was worthy of a point on its own. In that day and time, you see, it wasn't at all unusual for someone who had means to take advantage of those who didn't, And in that way, they would become richer and richer and the poor would suffer without hardly anything and their condition was only worsened by the oppression of the rich. James, by the way, mentions that in the New Testament era in James 2, verses 7 through 10. He said, Do not the rich oppress you? You and I perhaps then should think in clear clarity about the very matter of the oppression of those that are poor. Proverbs 13, 23 will be our guiding text. On that occasion, the inspired writer said, Much food is in the tillage of the poor, but there is that destroyed for want of judgment. The more correct American standard rendering from the Hebrew reads that as by reason of injustice. So by reason of injustice, the poor are oppressed. The poor are made to suffer more than otherwise they would simply to pad the pockets of those who want more and more. Are there those in our world who operate that way? Without a doubt. And sometimes they reach the light of making the 6 o'clock news and, we're, and we recoil in disbelief that there are those who act that way, but they do. You see, they give no care for others. They're not interested in the well-being of somebody else. They just want to know how much more they can have of what that other person has. There are those who operate businesses on that premise, seeking to take advantage of the destitute and oppress those who have little, only to perhaps benefit themselves and those who wish to have more. Isn't it something to seriously consider? Because after all, in that way, we notice the end of all of these people is described in Proverbs 22. And I thought the word is so significant in verse 16. I'd invite you to read what Solomon has to say about these very same people. In Proverbs twenty-two sixteen, we read, "...He that oppresseth the poor to increase his riches, and he that giveth to the rich shall surely come to want." They shall surely come to want. Oh, it's true that in this life they may well come to realize their circumstance and find themselves in the same position of being oppressed because they end up making such bad decisions, they lose everything they've acquired. But might we notice, even if not here, they shall be greatly in want on that day of judgment. When on that occasion before the judgment bar of the august presence of the Almighty God of heaven, they shall be found regretfully wanting. Was it not said of Belshazzar in Daniel five twenty-three, Thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting? Indeed. The way he had lived his life was so far removed and less than the privileges afforded to him. Do you and I make such foolish choices? Do we thus take advantage of others to avail ourselves? We ought not ever do that. In fact, we've, sp- we've spoken about those who own businesses and those in high places. But sometimes even you and I can make simple decisions that take advantage of someone else to simply make ourselves richer. That's not wise, and it is not something that God approves. We need to be dutiful and responsible stewards of that which we have, ever desirous in fact, of taking care of the stewardship that God has given us. But as you give thought to perhaps one more idea in that way, proverbs twenty eight, verse eight, one more time the issue is discussed. I'd invite you to think of these two specifics mentioned here. He that by usury and unjust gain increaseth his substance, he shall gather it for him that will pity the poor. Those who do charge exorbitant interest and who in fact exact usury from others, who by unjust gain have acquired much, the inspired writer says they're going to gather all of that, but it's going to be given to somebody who does appreciate the state of the poor. That at least gives us some appreciation that these who've gathered such with injustice, they will not be allowed to use all of it for their sinful and ungodly ways. Some of it, God says is going to be diverted to the character of helping those who do appreciate the plight of the poor. God, you see is ultimately still in control. And as you and I think about this fourth lesson, perhaps perhaps, Two more very brief ones. In the fifth place, the cause, the reason for one's labor. We've mentioned on so many occasions thus far this morning the issues concerning honoring God with our substance. That involves, in most instances, work, going to a business, participating in the activity of life that we call work and labor, It would perhaps be well to remind ourselves that the Bible does not frown upon work. In fact, even from the very beginning, it has been lifted to its rightful place. Wasn't Adam given the charge to dress and to keep the garden in Genesis 2, verses 15 and 16? And that was before sin entered the world. You see, work is not just the byproduct of sin. It is a wholesome activity in which we remove ourselves from idleness... And in so doing, we sharpen the talents and abilities God has given us. We employ them to our betterment and that of others. As one gives thought to that matter of work, it is in many ways that the Bible uses it to help us appreciate the work involved in the kingdom. The work involved in passages like Philippians 2, 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Or that statement in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they might rest from their labors, and their works to follow them. It is in light of those matters that we can turn to Proverbs 23, 4. What does all this have to do with what Solomon has to say here? Consider this very brief passage with me. Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. The opening part of that passage is the matter I wish us to consider. Labor not to be rich. Question for you and for me. Why do you and I rise on Monday morning and go to the office? To the place of business, to the place of work. Is our singular and sole purpose just to make more money? Is there anything deeper to the activity than that? Is there anything of more noble consequence than that? Certainly, we look forward to the opportunity of using those funds to make a way for ourselves and our loved ones, our families, to in fact perhaps eventually leave an inheritance to our children. Might I ask though in all of that, is there nothing deeper to be appreciated? Because here Solomon says, do not labor to be rich if I go just to make money. Solomon seems to say that I'm missing at least a major part of the point. I must see something larger in it than that. Of course, we understand on many occasions that the Bible does touch those other subjects of why one should appreciate the necessity of work and labor. It is such that it goes far deeper than just being rich. We all know that in this life we may never be what man would call rich, but we realize we're rich in something far better than money. Those who are, in fact, rich are those who have laid up treasures in heaven. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. But rather lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasury is there will your heart be also. Didn't Paul summarize some of this for us in 1 Timothy 6? when he said, For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveteth after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It is in this regard we can thus turn our attention to notice. When we go to work tomorrow or Tuesday, yea, even on up through Saturday, let us not do it solely for the purpose of filling our pockets with money but to appreciate that it is an opportunity for us to understand God's blessings of a, faithful, of a physical nature because He has provided that for us as a mainstay to allow us to successfully and comfortably make it through the 70, 80, or 100 years upon this earth. Our final riches are somewhere else, and the greatest of our riches are elsewhere. Isn't it true in light of all of that? that many in our world seem to have missed this point. They look so forward to going to work for nothing more than the paycheck, and that's it. I suppose each of us are happy with the paycheck, admittedly, but we see in it, I would hope, something far more special and greater than just the paycheck itself. It is with those thoughts in mind that fifth lesson brings us to a summary, a conclusion point for this lesson. We'll, in fact, next Sunday morning look at another installment, for there is much more to be said uh, in terms of advice from this rich man. But in fact, could we summarize this way today? Solomon has been our speaker, an inspired and wealthy man. In his wisdom, he has reminded us that the owner of these riches is God. We must never forget that fact. In addition to that, we've also learned the valiant truth, as you can see listed below that. We must ever use character and integrity in the acquiring and disposition of those funds. We must furthermore understand so well that greediness by itself is sinful. And finally, those last two, appreciative of the fact that the oppression of the poor, the acquiring of money in an unjust way, as well as the things associated with that final lesson that we've just seen, laboring not to be rich. That takes us to where we'll pick up next Lord's Day morning. But for today, what's the thought that rings in your mind and mine about the way you've looked upon money? Does it have too high a position in your life of priorities? Do you need to make some judicial changes, some changes in the course of action of life? If so, there will be never a better day than this one. If we can help you today in your response in a public way to the gospel call of invitation... Note that in order to become a Christian, God demands this of you. Hear the, Lord of, hear the word of the Lord. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you with that, it would be our privilege. If you need to return to your first love, though, maybe you've now gotten to a point in life that money has become a problem. It is standing between you and salvation. If it is, make a change today. Pray to God for forgiveness. He, through His Word, will give you the proper instructions for putting that money in its rightful position. And if we can make that prayer on your behalf today, we'd only ask you let us know, as we do, as and we would do so while together we stand and while we sing.